to Psychocinematic, the podcast where we analyse depictions of mental illness and disability in popular film and TV. Listener note, big trigger warning for this episode, with significant depictions of childhood abuse. It's been a while since since I've recorded, so I've forgotten how to do it, but here we are. Mm. Here we are again with Maz Fanasia. Yeah, hi everyone. Our resident Go on. Co-po- co-podcast co-host. I love that. I sorry everyone I am a bit sick and my voice is not very listenable but you'll you'll have a good time. I think it's we'll um, it's a got time. a husky quality that's quite Thank quite sensual. I just feel I just feel like you know but you get it. So yeah, how's life going? We're all, you know, lockdown nation, Australia, lockdown capital of the world. It is a bit odd that we're back where we were exactly one year ago and I don't like it personally. Yeah, I just, I'm just like, really, personally it doesn't really affect me that much. Or apart from the fact you can't see your fam. My life's pretty normal in terms of lockdowns and stuff, but it's just, it's shit, when the fuck is this going to be over? It's just, I was thinking about it last night. I was like, this is exactly where we were last year. Like nothing has changed. It's except we, worse now. Except we have a vaccine, so it shouldn't be this way. <laughs> but, yeah, like, the cases have never been bigger. I just can't. I just can't. And then Gladys is like, oh, we're not focusing on the case numbers anymore. But it's like, we're like 14,000 cases today. Really? I didn't even No, 1,400, not 14,000. <laughs> but, yeah. Well, I'm just a bit scared about I hope we get to see each other by Christmas. That's all I'm going to oh say. Oh, my God. I don't even know if we will. Yeah. Steph, I, I don't think don't we either. Will. Important news. I'm a TikToker now. I've gone oh, yes, viral. Oh, yes, People hate her. <laughs> Disney fans hate her. Oh, my God. I just thought I I'd hate- give it a go. And um, my most watched TikTok is my least inventive one. I literally yeah. just watch a bit of a show and make reactions. Were you <laughs> so- just, you were just watching it and thought it was weird? Is that what happened? Well, yeah, I think also maybe I got some clicks from having um, when you realise that Pongo from 101 Dalmatians is a sexual predator. I think that <laughs> might have got people the language you used riled up. I was being yeah. a little bit dramatic, but well, yeah. I stand by it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I just think it's a weird clip. It's a bit yucky. Well, we'll leave it at that. Well, I put it. The reason yucky. why I did it is I put it on for Casper, and he yeah. loves dogs, and. And then I started watching I was like, this is Ew. not good. This has mm, not aged mm. nicely. What have you been watching lately? Um, I watched White Lotus. I feel like I was the first person in the whole entire world to watch White Lotus. Could have, um, could could be true. Well, because I just saw an ad for it the day it came out. I was like, hmm, what's this? And then I watched the first episode and then became invested. Mr. Mike White did a fantastic job. It's very yeah. funny. I really enjoyed it. Uh, known um, for School of Rock. School of Rock and well, Orange County. Yeah, I, I remember liking that. I've never seen it. Um, it was fine. And it's, it was watching... a very good series, though. I agree. Yes, it was. It was. It was like I like how much how many drugs they did because it. <laughs> I don't know. It was. It was real to me. <laughs> um, I think we should cover it one day. Just the mental illness of whiteness. Yeah, and that yeah. that 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 conscious psyche struggle. And also, like, the the son who, like, her sister says has autism, but, like, well, that, yeah. 
the way he's treated by them and well like at the in the first episode they were like oh he can he's stimming and yeah. i thought he actually was like was diagnosed with autism but then i realized it was just being a dick um and also that wokeness of white people when it only goes so far too oh yeah yeah it's very mm. it's good it's yeah so much to say um oh i've been watching nine perfect strangers as well <gasps> me too are you all caught up Yes. Are you? Yeah. yeah, The the latest episode came out like last night, right? Yeah, I only watched it today. Um, But yeah, I'm I'm enjoying it. Me too. Me too. Um, I think there's a there's a few differences than in the book, Mm. Um, but mostly it's pretty bang on. Nicole, (laughs) I look. I love her. Oh, we love her. I do too. I like how she's in these more quirky roles, Mm. like. When she's in Killing of a Sacred Deer. Oh, I, f- I forgot she was in that. She, like, for, like, that actually, is her, like, right? a, yeah, for, like, an actual, like, very famous, like, mainstream actress, she's been in a lot of, like, weird shit, not weird shit, but, like, l- like, left of centre. Yeah. <laughs> and people kind of forget that. They're just like, oh, Nicole Kidman. Or... Yeah. Like, she's just in a lot of shit. I don't know. It's true. Um, But she, I, she's okay. She's not the... To be, like, if there were to be a main character of that show, she probably is the main character, but she's not the one I'm paying the most attention to. So that's true. Yeah, I'm loving Melissa McCarthy. Yeah, she's doing well. And um, what's her name? Our you know Australian queen. Um, Ash Asha Asha Keddie. Asha Keddie. Yeah, Asha Keddie. I'm really, really enjoying her. Give me an Emmy, Asha. Because give I'll give you an Emmy, stuff. <laughs> give me one, Asha. Thanks. Because Somehow I think, acquire one. Because she's like in like Offspring and stuff. I think she's a good actress in that as well. She's like very relatable in the way she talks. Something about her, her whole vibe. And she good. was. I first saw her in Love My Way. I think it was. Of course. Of which course. is iconic Australian TV. Um. So I think she is just generally a good actress. But I just like seeing her with you know all the big dogs. You know. Yeah. Well, it was all it was all filmed in Australia, so it kind of makes sense. Mm. Mm. Oh, yeah, and there's a bunch of us, like the girl with the big teeth, she's Australian. Is she one of the people in, like, yeah. that work there? She's, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 not that works there. She's, um, she's like the Instagram modely type person. Oh, really? She's yeah, Australian. yeah, yeah, she's Australian, yeah. I think she was on Home and Away or something. Oh, uh-huh. um, well, that's good. I she's think just maybe great. even the younger daughter might be Australian as well. A bunch of Australian actresses. Bloody actors. heck. What are you watching? <laughs> the same as you. Mm. Um... Uh, oh, we started something that's pretty good. It's called the Only Murders in the Building. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, they're like all on tre- Disney tre- Channel. They're on the Disney Channel. It's on the Disney Channel. <laughs> well, they've got this offshoot called Star, so it's you mean technical. Disney Plus? <laughs> um, yeah. Is it good? Yeah, it's actually. I've, we've only watched two episodes because. And there's only three or four that's come out. It's like not coming. It's not all out at once. I'm pretty sure. Mm. Um, yeah. And it's so far very, very easy to watch and very uh, intriguing. And it's also a play. It's it's all about podcasts too. Mm. <laughs> oh my god, we have to do it on this one. <laughs> All right, let's let's get to what we're doing today before we lose the plot. Mass, what you picked this one? You yeah, wanted I... you wanted to really drag us through some mud. The mud. <laughs> and it has taken me, I don't know why, 
Because usually when I've done episodes in the past, it hasn't taken me that long to do my research and kind of get my head together, but this has taken me a really long time. I don't know why. Um, but everybody, for some reason, I decided we would be tackling the movies slash book of Sybil. Yeah, so it's kind of a multimedia episode because yes. we both watched both movies. I don't think either of us read the book, but I don't no, think that's necessary. I don't think I want to. Um, but yeah, if you haven't seen Sybil or heard about it, um, you're probably you're probably too young. But I think a lot of older um, boomer type people have heard about Sybil um, because it was a telly movie. It came out in 1976 um, that made this massive impact on popular culture, especially in America, because um, it was about a woman who had multiple personality disorder as what they called it in the time. We now call it dissociative identity disorder. Um, and I think the book was called like Sybil, the girl with 16 personalities or something. I was just going to say, and there was a remake in 2007. Yes. But so, it feels like it was made in the 90s. There's not much, yeah. Way. I don't really know why. I just want to. I just want to say this is the first movie we're doing that was based on a real person, mm. but it's a fictional movie based yes. on events, and a lot of the events in the movie did not happen. Like, um, were fictionalized or embellished. So, it's not one I would normally pick, but it's just <laughs> also so. No, no, I'm glad we picked it because it's such. It's a really good example of how media shapes the prevalence of a disorder and yes. what a diagnosis Definitely. looks like. Like it, you can't do a podcast about mental illness and not do this movie, I think. Yeah. Personally. Well, well if you're going to touch on the, the, you know, the array of mental ill mind, you, you know, <laughs> DID is, is one of them. So, and this is probably the perfect movie to do if we're going to well, touch on it. It's kind of like why I did Rain Man. It's like it, it opened up the media world of mm. what autism was and this is the same for this one yeah um i feel like some pre-listening should be your wrong abouts episode on multiple yes. personality disorder yeah i i i listened to i did end up listening to it actually um and re-listening to it i found it um it was good but i found it less objective more one i agree yeah they do yeah. they tend to be very on one side about something yeah yeah I don't think I agree with everything they said. No. I think, mm, yeah, just because, like... I, th- I love them deeply as best friends. Of course. But, I, yeah, can I agree think they kind of showed one side of the argument without exploring the other side, maybe. Mm. But also, yeah, um, for some reason I watched this movie, I think I was in high school. Um, I just, I don't even know why the fuck. Like, when, did, why? Like, why did I watch I didn't realise you watched that so long ago. The first one or the second one? Second one. Oh. I think it was just mum, you know, our mother. Oh, our mother. But she watches all this really, like, she's got good taste in movies and shows, right? But she, like, when we have Foxtel, like, the Hallmark Channel and all those, like, weird, terrible, shitty telly movies, like, made-for-TV movies, she just watches the shit out of them. And she, like, she I think she's of the gener. she came from the generation where you just watch whatever was on TV. Yeah. Because and that then, was all you had and she still does that. <laughs> and, it, you know, if I was sitting down with her and something, you know, piqued my attention I'd just end up watching that I've watched so much weird shit because of her um but yeah that was this was one of them this is one of those things I just for some reason sat down and watched the entire thing and it apparently made quite the impact on me (laughs) well here we are years later Mm, mm, mm. 
Um, had you had you seen you hadn't seen it? Is no, right? I'd heard I'd heard all about it, and when um, we like learnt about dissociative disorders at uni, I think it might have had a reference. There might have been a little, you know, reference in the textbook mm. I had about this movie, um, but I never like came across it because it's not really a movie. We both had to stream it, didn't we? Well, yeah, <laughs> to it's watch like a, it. it's a yeah made-for-television movie. So it's it's strange because it's made such a cultural impact that you can't find it on Netflix or fucking Stan no. or anything like that. But to be honest, I don't know why you would watch it. Like, I don't <laughs> think people listening to this episode need to watch it. It's not so. Yeah, it's, it's not like a good. It's not a good movie. <laughs> it's not something you want to sit down and watch. I don't know. It's it's. But I'm glad we're doing it. <laughs> there are two versions of this movie. One which was made in 1976 starring Sally Field. And it was a, a kind of like a made-for-television event. And it was um, streamed, what is, uh, shown over two nights. So it actually goes for like th- almost four hours. So it's a lot. Yeah, it's like three and a half it. hours. Yeah, it's so much. So yeah, when it came out in 1976, it made this massive impact. People heard about it for the first time, and then for some reason they remade the movie in two thousand and seven with Jessica 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 Lang and another lady. Um, but two thousand seven ones we we've both watched both of them, so we've had a lot of trauma. <laughs> it's a lot of trauma to watch in one go. All right, so the plot of. I'll start with the general plot and then like talk about the differences between versions. So Sybil Dorset is in art school in New York. She's like in her 20s, very pretty. Um, she's experiencing blackouts where she can't account for days of time and has no idea what she's done in that time. She's referred to a psychiatrist, Dr. Connie Wilbur, who is very soon presented with the different personalities inhabited by Sybil. When she first sees Dr. Wilbur, Sybil smashes a lot of glass. She, in the 1976 version, Sybil goes to her father to, like, ask permission to be treated by Dr. Wilbur and her her father won't approve of psychiatrists and won't allow it. Uh, He's a God-fearing man, yeah. Yeah, it's all about how psychiatrists are not what God wants. Um, But she does it anyway. There's an interesting plot line in the 2007 version, which isn't in the 70s version, where, which makes the questions actually a little bit. But anyway, the psychiatrist, Dr. Wilbur, has to defend her choice to treat Sybil by mm. her colleague who keeps belie- saying that, oh, it's just a woman hysteria time of the month problem. Does like, that character, does he, who is, uh, does he have a name? I can't remember. I'm so sorry. That might, be, that might be historically relevant. I don't fucking know. It, it, could it. it be from the book? <laughs> well, it could be an actual person. I don't know. One sec. Well, I think what that plotline is trying to show how women psychiatrists weren't believed yeah as much as men and also women weren't given validity of their problems as much as men but yeah basically her colleague is like oh stop saying she's got personality she just got a period Mm. and dr wilbur is like no this is this is a very unique case we've got a really big thing happening here she's like i'm gonna make history with this this patient so uh, the the character's name, her colleague's name is Dr. Atchison. Um, mm-hmm. And from my knowledge, that isn't representative of an actual person. I know that there were people that in the real case had 
pushback to it, but I think maybe that character just represents all of represents that. Represents all of them, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Which go on. <laughs> which is fine. Um so in both movies, Dr. Wilbur pretty much diagnoses uh Sybil with multiple personality disorder and she believes that Sybil has deep childhood trauma that has resulted in her personality splitting to deal with it. For example, one of her personalities in both movies, Peggy, experiences the anger that Sybil cannot herself experience. So I'll break down all the different (laughs) personalities, which are also called alters, and they're supposed to be 16, um, but I don't think they actually mention all 16 of them in both movies but anyway they kind of they start they they'll start to go through them like quite in depth and then the 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 ones that towards the end are just like and this person yeah you know like it's weird yeah so there's the main ones are like peggy lou who's nine who breaks a lot of glass and she's very angry at her mother's abuse Vicky's 18. She speaks French. She's (laughs) she grew up in Paris. She's well she just has a French accent. She doesn't even speak French. Sorry. Oh, she does say a couple of words. Like merci um, beaucoup. <laughs> pretty much. She's the dominant personality and she kind of leads the others or has some control over the others and she's the only one who will be hypnotised. And she says she's the first personality, which is interesting. How does that even make sense? It doesn't. Anyway, <laughs> um, Vanessa is a 12-year-old girl who's outgoing. She um, dates the guy who's in the 1970 movie like she's the one who's in love with him yeah um Marsha is a young girl who's dressed in black and she's obsessed with suicide and just wants to kill Sybil and all the altars um she's yeah Ruthie is a baby (laughs) and when she comes an actual baby (laughs) when she comes out she just is catatonic and won't move or speak she's like pre-motor Um, one of like my notes I was reading over like while watching the movie, I think the first one, um, I, my note is Sybil has dissociated into a baby. <laughs> <laughs> She's now a baby. She's a baby now. Mary is an old woman who's named for and resembles Sybil's grandmother, who was pretty much the only person Sybil felt safe with and loved by. There's like a bunch of other girls with very little actual personality. Nancy, Clara, Helen, Marjorie, they're just like young. A lot of them are very religious. Sybil Ann is the most scared one. Um, she's about five. Uh, Mike and Sid are the only mm. boys, which mm. is apparently just, oh, there's boys in there. Um, yeah. And when they come out, they they both, in both movies they make a point to say to uh, the psychiatrist that they want to be able to grow up and give a girl a baby when they're older, and I don't think I've ever met a boy their age to say I'm gonna give a girl a baby. <laughs> like, all the boys are like in high school. Like when I grow up, I'm gonna I give a girl a baby. <laughs> wait to get a girl pregnant. <laughs> Fuck. If someone came, like if I knew uh, like a boy who was 16 and wanted kids, I like that bad. Like, what the fuck is wrong? <laughs> you are not a real even, boy. Even girls, dude, they don't want. No one wants that. Anyway, um, and then there's a couple of others. There's like Peggy Ann and Ruby. Their their names have been mentioned, but I don't know very much about them. Also, <sighs> the, back to the like the boys in like both movies. They're always fixing things. And yeah, always, and they're like, playing like, football. And I read one criticism about this actually both of the films where when you go back to her past it looks like it's in like the 30s and she wouldn't 
have been around at that time and the boys are dressed like they've got page boy caps and yeah, actually, they look the time like they're from the twenties. <laughs> like I don't know what kind of boys these are. So back to the plot. Eventually, Dr. Wilbur uncovers some traumas, including that Sybil watched her grandmother die. That's particularly in the 2007 movie. Um, Also that she saw her, like, a baby buried, which was like a miscarriage, I think. Yeah, like a fetus. Maybe, or or an abortion. I don't know. Yeah, I think Um, it was like a stillborn baby, maybe. Yeah. Um, Sybil watched her boyfriend die in an accident while falling on a pitchfork. And then in both movies, we find out that her mother was, like, abusive towards her, was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, and uh, when questioned, her husband just says she was jumpy and nervous and didn't talk for a year, but it was nothing. It was fine. Um, Who among us hasn't talked for a year, you know? Oh, I'd love to be that mum. No, I wouldn't. Um, Wow. (laughs) So there's lots of flashbacks, and I don't want to go too deeply into the traumas because they're pretty traumatising like ice bath enemas and raping her with a button hook and tying her to various bits of furniture. And in both movies, there's a memory of Sybil telling a doctor to take her with him when when she was little and she was at hospital Um, and he doesn't take her with him. So she's got a very big sense of abandonment. But plot twist, plot twist. In the 1976 movie, which they took out of the 2007 movie for some reason. She says the whole thing is a lie. Sybil admits, I don't have multiple personalities, it's just me. And she says she lied about the abuse and what had happened. After this point in the 76 movie, the doctor goes to Sybil's town to try and dig up some sort of proof or evidence of the abuse, which she sees. Um, and she yeah. meets the, her pediatrician. Uh, who admits that, oh, yeah, she came in with lots of injuries, she had fractured bones, and he found lots of scarring in her uterus. Um, Didn't report any of this, but Dr. Wilbur's like, it's fine, it's cool. Why would a doctor be in a child's uterus, though? Like, Well, apparently he was checking out her bladder problem and she saw Oh, that's right, yeah, just because. And he was like, she had a very unusual bladder problem, which you don't see in children, and I bet it was that she was... Uh, she had retention, which is what I had when I was pregnant, and you can't wait. So when Dr. Wilbur comes back and presents Sybil with the evidence that all these things did happen, Sybil apologises for saying she made it up and just says she was afraid of hoping that she might get well. So she, you know, according to the movie, she, she didn't make it all up. In both movies, Sybil becomes more aware of her personalities. Um, they sort of noticed that Things might change. They become resistant to changing because they will die. But Dr. Wilbur reassures they were not going to die. They'll just become whole. And at the end of both movies, the psychiatrist spends a long time getting all of the alters to sort of integrate. So they all have to remember the things that happened to them at the same time. So they all become the same age. And it's all through hypnosis. So in the 2007 movie, it's like a time lapse. It's like daytime, then it's nighttime. And the 1967 version, they're just lying under a tree in a park, which is beautiful. It takes like between 10 minutes to 24 hours (laughs) to integrate a lifetime of trauma. Exactly. Um, And she wakes up and says, I remember I tried to love her, but I didn't. I hate her. I hated Mm. her. So she gets mad as Sybil rather than having to be an alter who gets mad. And then she's fixed and that's the end. But in both movies, there's like a little thing at the end where they say, you know, they work together for 
11 many years. years, 11 years, and they became friends for life, which is something we will get to. <laughs> Look, I like in terms of movies being traumatic, like I don't usually get that yucky feeling after watching a movie too often, but something about seeing children abused is extremely hard to watch. And the the mother who is doing most of the abuse is cartoonish in a way that I don't think most humans are, like that one-dimensionally terrible. Um, I know people are abusive well, and people can be t- yeah. really terrible, but you don't see any redeeming qualities about her. So she just... It, it, this will go into our discussion about whether it happened or not, but it is very rare, rare for that many bad things to happen to one person. <laughs> and um, that's why it's so hard to, I think, watch because it's like, what is the point of existing at this point? Like, I guess I guess it, it needed to be pretty full on for her to split into so many personalities, as is, yeah. as is the um, cons- case conceptualization of Sybil and uh, DID. But mm. I agree. I feel like like the the mothers were supposed to be schizophrenic, and it's a very cartoonish portrayal of schizophrenia in itself. Mm. Um, and you know, it, it it beggars belief that her dad just did nothing, and yeah. he's just Although, as bad but, as like, her. She was, well, you know, and they are living in like what seems to be a normal, like close knit ish type of old community, and just yeah, a small country town. No one. Well, so in in the two thousand and seven version, the mum shits on her neighbor's like front like driveway or something. Yeah, um, it's interesting in the the two thousand and seven one. It felt like they were a bit more close. Like there was yeah, she was less There's overtly. Some kind of bond there just horrible and more complex yeah i found it triggering as a mum. oh my god <laughs> how distressed and traumatized a little girl was and what was happening to her it was just mm. ha- so hard to watch let's talk about just briefly touch on lived experience Maz, you did a little bit of research on yeah i, I did a little bit and then kind of was just like oh, whatever um <laughs> there's some interesting things though about the cast that there are so um jessica Je- lessica lang is jessica lang <laughs> lessica lang <laughs> jessica lang um plays dr wilbur in the 2007 version um she often plays characters battling mental illness, apparently. I don't really know if I've seen her in many things. Um, but she has... I saw her in a couple of things. Ooh, uh, she's struggled with depression, allegedly. Mm. Um, jo Beth Williams plays Hattie in... I forgot which version. Uh, I she think has, it's the 2007 version. Yeah, She has my birthday. <laughs> <laughs> Happy she's birthday, like, Jo Beth Williams. She has the same birthday as me. In That's December. <laughs> That's all. Um, so Joanne Woodward, who plays Dr. Wilbur in the 1976 version, apparently I think she's quite a prolific actress. I think she's been in a lot of shit, but I wouldn't know. She was engaged to author Gore Vidal before she got married to Paul Newman, um, and apparently they were quite a power couple, wow. allegedly. Um, but she claimed her relationship with Gore Vidal was a front for him because he was gay. And she has, <laughs> and you wrote she has Alzheimer's. <laughs> She has a single Alzheimer. <laughs> <laughs> Just one. 
Um, yeah, yeah. It's kind of hard to find information about it, but yeah, apparently her mental... Since um, Paul Newman died, she's deteriorated because they spent every second of every day with each other. I don't know. Brad Davis plays Sybil's boyfriend in the 1976 version. Um, What a wild life. Um, He died in in 1991 of HIV uh, and kept it secret so he could still work and support his family. That's so sad. He was diagnosed in 1985 and died in 1991. Um, He suffered physical and sexual abuse by his parents. Um, He was an alcoholic and intravenous drug user um, and became sober in 1981. So he was probably doing the dirty while... um, he was filming this. His wife came out and said that he um, died by assisted suicide in 1991. So, yeah. It, yeah. What, what a, a life. life. Poor dude. Well, actually, Sally Field, we covered in a previous episode. Oh, uh, um, Yeah. She, she struggled with an eating disorder and she mm. went through a lot of stress. I think this movie would have been very stressful for her. <laughs> Oh my god! Like, how could you not? It's just—it's yeah. like what we said about um, Ari Aster's films. You mm, just mm. have PTSD from it. Definitely. Um, and all the fucking poor kids, the poor little girls who had to play. They probably the young have no Sybil. idea. Oh my god! I hope you'd not. have to try and like. I feel like doing. You'd have to be really close with everyone and be like having jokes halfway through. Yeah. Otherwise, you just lose the plot. Uh, and I didn't actually look up the the girl who plays Sybil in. The 2007 version. So that's on me, guys. I'm sorry. I will say the portrayal of Sybil in probably the uh, both movies. There are certain times when she's obviously triggered by something, and she just she repeats words over and over again. It's just it's extremely cartoonish. And I mm-hmm. uh, look, I haven't worked with people who have such trauma, but I don't. Is that accurate? Well, I don't know. Neither have I, and and we'll get we'll get to accuracy now if you like. So, how the book came about? It was it was so popular in the seventies, and the author Flora Schreiber and psych and Dr. Wilbur, who was Dr. Wilbur, the psychiatrist, became really famous and very profitable as a mm. result. Sybil did as well, but. Um, no one really knew who she was until she died. And her name was actually Shirley Mason. Yes, yeah, so yeah, it was a pseudonym. A pseudonym. All I all I know, um, without having actually read the book myself, um, from what I've read, um, she was brought up in a a very strict seven seventh day Adventist household in Minnesota, in a small town. And they believe that people shouldn't read fiction, people shouldn't party mm-hmm. or do anything fun at all and Shirley because she couldn't read she wasn't allowed to she loved to make up stories and and was Uh really uh really imaginative that's something to keep in mind (laughs) so she actually was seeing Dr Wilbur for many years yeah so apparently she'd been seeing her for like the 11 years previous and Dr what's her name Dr. Wilbur Wilbur had diagnosed her as schizophrenic Dr Wilbur was known to have an interest in multiple personality disorder and told Shirley to read up on Mm. it Mm. and knowing that Shirley was already very fantastical she liked to fantasize and make up stuff quite easily she then came to Dr. Wilbur's session years later and said oh I'm Peggy Mm. I'm a a nine-year-old alter and alter isn't is is a word to describe a a different personality 
Alter is like the you would use alter in like modern speech, right? That's what you would like. The, I think they the, used that term then as okay, well. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, and there's a really good article that sort of talks it through. If you don't have time to read the whole book, <laughs> there was a book that came out. When did you, when did it come out? Oh, so Civil Exposed came out in I think 2010. So basically, to preface it. The 1976 book comes out detailing Sybil's story and as early as, I think, 1997, 1998, a doctor named, oh, fuck, what's his name, Herbert, Herbert Spiegel, who was kind of assisting Dr. Wilbur during their sessions. He was kind of a surrogate therapist while Dr. Wilbur was away and he did some therapy with her. He comes out in, like, say, 1997, 1998 and says that it was made up, that's fabricated. He's got all this evidence that it didn't actually exist. He's got tapes and that um, Dr. Wilbur and Flora Schreiber, whatever her name is, um, had kind of taken this case, which was, you know, she was obviously not mentally well, and had embellished it and made it a lot more fantastical than it actually was, while at the same time suggesting, through suggestive therapy techniques, um, making Shirley believe that she did have multiple personalities. And then what happened after this guy came out and said that? I think, I'm not really sure, between like 1998 and say um, 2011 when the um, Sybil Exposed book came out, um, I think there was just speculation and not they, they weren't really sure if it was real or, or not. And then, yeah, in 2011, an uh, author named, I think it's Debbie Mason, comes out with a book called Sybil Exposed. Debbie Nathan, yeah. Detailing how it is completely 100% fabricated. But there are there are problems with all arguments. There, are pro- I think there are definite, definite problems with Dr. Wilbur's book from the 70s. Um, there are problems with... Herbert Spiegel, the guy who came out in 1998, and then there are problems with Nathan's book as well. So it's just yeah. really fucking hard to figure out what the truth is. Or, yeah. Well, the only person who knows who the truth is is, is probably Sybil. Well, does she she's <laughs> Anyway. But, yeah, so and a lot of there was a lot of criticism with um, Dr. Herbert Spiegel coming out as well because he only started to dispute the claims after Dr. Wilbur, um, Schreiber, and... Um, Shirley Mason were actually dead. So there was no one there to really... Mm, there was no... You know, they couldn't really speak for themselves. There's no pushback because, yeah. Well, what, what Debbie Nathan says after P, uh, Shirley started presenting as, as a different person, according to Debbie Nathan, this is what she wrote, Dr. Wilbur barely blinked an eye. She seemed very pleased that she now had a multiple personality disorder patient. She, she told Shirley she treated for free on credit and she began giving her strong psychotropic drugs and barbiturates. Within a few weeks, Dr. Wilbur asked Shirley if she'd like to write a book with her about the case. So that's what, doc, that's what Debbie Nathan says. Mm-hmm. But what is absolutely documented is that Sybil was pretty much reliant on Dr. Wilbur until her death. Yes. I think they even lived together. Yeah, I think she lived with her. For a time. She paid her rent for the time. She fed her. She clothed her. Um, obviously incredibly emotionally dependent on her because she's a therapist. And then when she died, um, like it was exposed that she was the Sybil. Yes. Yeah. In the book. And I guess because at the end of both movies, or oh, the 2007 movie at least, they took, um, there was all this art because Sybil slash Shirley was an art student, I'm pretty sure, and she did mm-hmm. spend a lot of time painting and uh, I think proof or evidence that she really was a multiple personality was because she had lots of different styles of artwork and they kind mm. of, 
yeah contradicted each other I don't know how true that is or if that was just a bit of yeah I don't know actually that's just from the movie but um yeah we we know that the doctor patient relationship in real life and the movie is fucked <laughs> and why is that fucked mass because there are <laughs> there are no boundaries between the two and uh, like it just even i think it's more evident in the two, uh, the the 70s version like she's hugging her she's telling her she loves her Yes. She, 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 you know, like saying things like, oh, come sit on the big chair with me, you know, come sit with me and, you know, I love you, I'll always be here for you, things like that. Like, Do you want to know a fun fact? Yes. The, the, the Tears for Fears album Songs from the Big Chair is a reference to Sybil and the song Everybody Wants to Rule the World is written about Sybil. Bullshit. to the internet. Bullshit. I love that song. So, it's a bloody good song. In terms of the therapy, on the premise that DID definitely is what was happening for Sybil, mm-hmm. someone who's going through that and is so traumatised and is so, would be so, obviously so distressing for them to experience that. Your job as a therapist is to essentially hold your client and manage their, give them a safe place for their feelings mm. so they can work out their feelings. And that's, obviously what um, Dr. Wilbur was trying to do um, and a big theme for Sybil and for a lot of clients with trauma is abandonment mm. um, and it's very hard as a, as a therapist to balance managing that fear of abandonment yeah. without crossing a line yeah. because they, you know, the, the, the treatment for abandonment is to, is to be um, to change the message to no people don't always leave you mm. um, people who care about you will be there for you mm. and you are worth it you are worth sticking around for mm. but also you need professional lines in the sand so that you don't they don't become dependent on you. yes so, and that is often a difficult thing to juggle yeah for sure Especially when someone like Sybil has no one really else in their corner looking out for them. And it seems as though Sybil can't really exist on her own. Like, she, I don't know if she can really do much for herself. Well, she's done pretty well to be in New York by herself for, for as long as she was. But, like, if she, like, I know that the altars will take over, but when she dissociates into, like, a literal baby and things like that, like, she, like, it's almost as though she cannot be on her own. She can't do anything for herself. And then Dr. Orr mm. becomes what, her like mother, parent? Yeah. Like. Well, that's exactly what she ends up doing. She beca- yeah. becomes her mother. But instead of doing that for that purpose of therapy, yeah, it sounds like, it seems like she does that forever. Oh, yeah. Um, and I think in real life, it seems that the, the narrative is based on criticism of, Dr. Wilbur, that she ended up doing everything for Sybil and, you know, giving her emotional and financial support because Sybil was going to make her a lot of money. Yes, it seems manipulative. It seems very manipulative. And I, but I will say, like, thinking about it, I'm not going to say either, like, it did that, that's the truth or that's not, but you can understand how subconsciously that might become the case. You know, she is 
providing her with all these things. And in the in the front of her mind, she's not probably thinking, oh, I'm going to use her for all her money, but that might be what her motivation subconsciously. Well, I mean, if you believe in the the movie, she's thinking, oh, this is such a unique case. Oh, this could this could be my the bit the whole yeah. thing of my career and cement me as a psychiatrist and I'll, I'll be sitting pretty for the rest of my life yeah and she's probably not thinking oh I'm going to exploit this person she's probably thinking oh I'll make this helpful for both of us yeah 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 that's yeah um but she doesn't in the movie she is 24 hours a day available to Sybil like the her boyfriend calls her when I think um she dissociates into the altar that wants to um kill herself all the time um if she ends up showing up all the time, like late at night, mm. she's just far too available. And like, it's a bit like on one hand, I can kind of get that she's available because, you know, one of the altars is the one who calls her. And if she wasn't, yeah. there, she probably would have. Suicide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But on the other hand, too, in terms of context at that time, um, there probably wasn't a lot available for someone of that um, someone with that kind of mental illness because they were probably hospitalised and not actually given talk therapy or treatment. They were probably just strapped to a bed. And you see that in, I think, the 2007 movie. She's, like, strapped to the bed. Yeah, she ends up getting um, restrained. You know, they didn't have – they probably just would have sedated her. They they wouldn't have actually given her treatment. Whereas now, if someone like Sybil presented to a psychiatrist, I think they would probably admit them into a facility mm. where they are they safe can be and they can have yeah. – group and individual therapy on a regular basis and then they're uh, discharged with outpatient care so it's yeah the, the boundaries are very clear so there's wouldn't be the need for dr wilbur to go running for to her while she's suicidal so maybe that being that being the criticism of the whole thing the whole story the whole movie whatever that dr wilbur was way too involved and sybil was way too reliant on her probably is excusable within the context of it being in the 50s or whatever because if not for Dr. Wilbur she probably would have not survived so Mm. but that doesn't justify her being in each other's pockets for the rest of her life no at all through my research um looking at the treatment of DID Mm -hmm. and this the suggestive um boundaries and way to treat a patient um so what they suggest is discussing appropriate medications limiting the use of suggestive interview techniques Mm -hmm. and suggesting appropriate boundaries so all three of those things were not done in the case of Sybil or Shirley Mason definitely not when did that come out that's I think today's modern they're modern yeah they're modern standards but if we're yeah Mm. we're critiquing it um but yeah, and allegedly, so Dr. Wilbur had actually treated Sybil for, I don't know how many years beforehand, but they had met and bonded. Um, and Sybil had, uh, I think Dr. Wilbur had moved from where Sybil was and then Sybil, Shirley Mason, had saved up and actually moved to um, Dr. Wilbur's place. So there's a lot more context prior to you know, what the book or the movie presents. So, yeah, it's just a bit murky, you mm, know? Mm. It's like what what came first. <laughs> I, yes. you know, I would really question all, like I don't, I don't necessarily think that DID doesn't exist, which we'll get to, but mm-hmm. I 
just would, based on what we know about Shirley Mason, I don't think mm. it's actually that likely that she really did have all those personalities because I believe that that would have been some red flags beforehand. Dr. Wilbur mm. was already had a very huge preconceived bias. There was all that leading mm-hmm. questions that has been documented and a good psychiatrist would check that. Yes. To make sure, but it seems like she just immediately thought, oh, yeah, this is what I want. Um, yeah. You know, it's important to be reflective as a psychiatrist and not always be 100% trusting of your gut. So yeah. doesn't sound like Dr. Wilbur did that. As a psychologist, what is your perspective on DID? Where does it fall in the realm of your experience? Like, what's the vibe? What's the gist? What's well, the let me take you to what Sane Australia says about it. No, I don't want to hear what Sane Australia has to say. I want to hear what you have to say, <laughs> you politician. Well, I'm joking. Actually, I'm joking. Let's even go one step back from that and actually discuss the criteria for dissociative identity. Oh, yeah, well. we, haven't, we haven't heard it from the DSM in a while. So this is the criteria that has to be met for a person to be diagnosed with dissociative identity disorder from the DSM-5. Um, Mm -hmm. The person experiences two or more distinct identities or personality states, each with its own way of thinking and relating. Some cultures see these states as the experience of being possessed. Mm -hmm. So that's important to note. It's very culturally contextual. Mm -hmm. The person experiences amnesia and gaps in the recall of everyday events, personal, informational, traumatic events. Mm -hmm. The person must be distressed by the disorder or have trouble functioning in their life as a result of the disorder. So if you're enjoying it, it's fine. Is that what we're to to believe? Well, it's it's the case for all disorders. That's why it's called disorder. Oh, it's if if it's not actually impacting your functioning, then is it a disorder? What if it's impacting your functioning but making you better? Then I would argue that's not a disorder. Hey, that's a that's a bonus. Fuck yeah! And that's the thing with with disorders; it's all very um, socially relative, culturally relative. Shape, yeah. yeah, it's exactly yeah. exactly. The disturbance is not part of a normal culture or religious practice, which very much leads back to what you were just saying. For example, a child with an imaginary friend is not indicative of mental illness, which it sounds like Shirley was pretty prone to. Mm. Also, the symptoms are not due to substance abuse or other medical conditions such as seizures. We know that. So we know that Shirley Mason was definitely sub, being, well, being drugged basically by Dr. Wilbur. Yeah, so you can't really rule that out. No. You can't rule any of that out. You can't rule the cultural background no. or religious background mm-hmm. because of her religious background. It's very you, religious. You can't rule out the substance abuse. Um, and I would argue you can't even rule out the traumatic event stuff because we don't know how accurate those things have, were. Just to start talking about dissociation, Maz, can you explain what dissociation is? Certainly, certainly. Um What does it feel like to you to start with? Dissociation more broadly is cut down into two types, like derealization, which is feeling disconnected from your surroundings, and then depersonalization, which is feeling disconnected from yourself. Mm I often see it described as like you're either watching yourself or like everything is a movie or, Mm. yeah. um, That's how I feel. I feel like everything is a dream. Yeah. And I don't, I don't really think about it as um, watching myself in a movie. It does feel more dreamlike. 
and it's just a general sense of disconnection um, to your surroundings. Like there's like kind of like a, a haze or a fog around everything. Mm-hmm. Um, with depersonalization, which I don't get as much anymore, which is good. Um, I'd often look in the mirror and not recognize myself. Um, just feel like who I was looking at was a completely different person. And when I do it, if I think about it too much, I spend too much time looking at myself. I do end up doing, I think we all do a little bit. But, <laughs> it's yeah. like when you say the, a word over and over, yeah. it loses meaning. I'm like, who the fuck's that? Um, and often um, I would, I'd look down at my hands and they, they weren't my hands. They just looked, they felt they're like they're moving on their own like they're not mine I get that feeling just before a migraine yes so and it's really hard for me now because I've learned to realize the symptoms of a migraine and dissociating are extremely similar and I can't mm. tell if I'm just anxious or I'm about to have a migraine attack or whatever so anyway but in the clinical literature dis- oh, yeah dissociation has three main symptoms or assumptions um, that it is a coping mechanism to deal with intense stresses, including and especially childhood and sexual and physical trauma, um, none of which I've experienced, so don't worry. Um, it is accompanied by cognitive, cognitive deficits that interfere with the process of emotionally laden information. What, 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 what does that mean? <laughs> is that like... Uh, I guess it means your usual cognitive processing is interfered with, So, and it's usually when there's a lot of emotions happening it's like mm-hmm. it interferes with being able to process that yes. those emotions yeah so it sort of separates you from them I think that's what that's trying to say yeah and that like in my experience as well often around very traumatic periods in my life I don't remember like it even like mm. last year there's so m- I don't have complete gaps in time obviously but I just and that lack of memory would be a cognitive de- deficit yeah and it's it's very vague, and that's I think that's what I've developed as a coping mechanism. Um, even in the past couple of months, I'll remember something. Like I'll have see a picture of something that'll remind me of something that happened three months ago, and I'm like, oh my god, I completely forgot that happened. Um, but this is this is why I need therapy. Anyway, and the third one is marked by an avoidant information processing style, characterized by a tendency to forget painful memories, which is, I think, part of what I just spoke about. Yeah, and definitely Sybil's supposed experience. Yeah. But, yeah, have you have you ever treated someone or come in no. contact with DID? I yeah. haven't. I'd love to have someone on the podcast who has it or, or has, um, tr- has treated it, but I don't know anyone. <laughs> and I think that this movie speaks to, the, the, the 70s version of it speaks to how how rare DID is or was, but and then <laughs> how common it became. Yeah, so in that book um, that Debbie Nathan wrote, in the entire history of Western civilization, there had been less than 200 cases over a period of centuries, but after the book and film, suddenly there were hundreds and thousands, and by the late 1980s, mm-hmm. there were 40,000 cases diagnosed in the US alone. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist but again I think it might be very culturally relevant um and like like Debbie Nathan says um you know there were women in the middle ages that went to inquisitors who said they felt they had devils inside them could it could have been their period but (laughs) you know it's not common it's not uncommon for people to feel like uh, you know there's something inside me or I'm Mm. not myself I feel like that. Um, and I think a lot of people do identify with that. There's, you know, 
anyone who dissociates, you know, you don't feel like you or you don't feel like what you're experiencing is you experiencing it. I think that's a, that's a more common feeling than people think. So, um, you know, it's not that people are faking it or mm-hmm. making it up. It could be that they're seeing someone like Sybil and going, oh, that's how I kind of feel sometimes. I, maybe mm-hmm. I have that. I will um, say, start when I started my research on DID, um, I became convinced I had DID. No, I didn't. But, like, it, <laughs> it's a very relatable feeling because I dissociate constantly. I've been dissociating since I was, like, 13. And mm. I found I figured out what was happening to me pretty quickly and but we the family ghastly (laughs) no one believed me (laughs) I had the exact name for it like I I I was like I hit the nail on the head but because I think it it's not a well like I think it's coming people are starting to realize just what dissociation is now but telling Mm. my parents that I was experiencing derealization depersonalization they're like what the fuck you bitch that's not what's happening yeah they heard those words and thought oh Maz thinks she's well um, yeah like I was maybe seeking attention or it really like you know I also obviously have ADHD and I um have OCD traits allegedly um and get depressed and very anxious so I am in different moods a lot and I'm Mm. dissociating a lot and I think with ADHD you do experience it's not mania but it's like a you get a little bit I don't know what the word is but you get a bit high more yeah you get yeah. when you when you're stimulated so it's over, easy. over overstimulated or aroused yeah. yeah yeah it's very easy for me to even identify like oh I, I am sometimes like that but it's not to the point where I have names and different backstories and you know and you know if you felt like saying oh it's it's not party maz today it's sad maz yeah, yeah. that's a personality yeah yeah they're just not distinct I think like anxiety itself was has been only very recently understood as not just being panic mm. there's also dissociation as part of anxiety yeah. in general yeah. which is anxiety is so freaking common mm. um but that doesn't necessarily mean that DID doesn't exist but that perhaps it's overdiagnosed because of the way dissociation is experienced in lots of different disorders yeah and what I think, I'll get more into it, but what I think I've realised is that DID, like, it might be more helpful to look at it as, like, it's, DID is the, is the name that we've given to this thing that exists for these people and that's how they present. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the, 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 the reason why it's happening might not necessarily be that, if that makes sense. It's like... We know I that, think I know what you're saying, yeah. But we know that people ex- have the experience of having multiple personalities. They present with these symptoms, and that's the name that we give to this cluster of symptoms. And that's what a diagnosis is, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the reason why they're experiencing those, um, I think the dispute is more the reason why they're experiencing yeah. those symptoms. So is it that they have been through suggested therapy techniques, being hypnotised and kind of being planted with false memories or whatever? Or is it culturally relative? Is it some other thing that's going on? And that, my dear, is the whole debate. Yes. <laughs> like what you were saying, it's really, I, I agree, it's not about whether it exists or doesn't. It's its more about what might be driving it and what to do with it, really. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'd say it's its a cultural diagnosis, which I also see ADHD as being. Because yes. It, 
its prevalence is so dependent on the culture and what is considered adaptive or not in the culture. And I think it's becoming so much more common. This is, okay, let's talk about ADHD for a sec. But, like, I think ADHD and capitalism, (laughs) that they're two things that exist that totally clash with each other because capitalism wants us to be productive, wants us to be able to sit down in the setting of, like, offices and things like that, sit down and concentrate and do a task to completion and, you know, focus on one thing. But ADHD totally inhibits us from doing that, from sitting down and concentrating from our mm-hmm. whole way of learning. And it's not so much that I don't think it is a def- like a disorder. I think it's just a different way of thinking and different way of processing information, which doesn't fit with the quote-unquote norm, right? I absolutely agree with you. It's it's a neurodiverse brain yeah. as opposed to a neurotypical brain. And there's like a lot of evidence that, you know, in pre prehistoric times, people with ADHD were necessary for our survival because you need to be able to be quick and alert and um, uh, adapt to different situations all the time and, um, you know, be able to multitask and shit like that. So there, there is a place for ADHD. It just doesn't fit so well in our society because capitalism wants us to be a certain type of person and we, we can't all be like that, can we? No. And it's the world that we live in today that either celebrates or doesn't celebrate yeah. neurodiversity. And so, I don't, I don't, I know that I, like diagnosis of ADHD is going up and up and up a lot. And I, I am hesitant to be critical of it because I think it just speaks to how like, you know, things and society progresses so much so quickly that we find ourselves in these new states of being like, you know, within decades and things like that. So yeah. The way diagnoses are going to shift depending on that. Yeah. And the people that we need to be like five in five years are always going to be different to the people we need to be now. So, and you know what I believe? What do you, what do you believe? And this is, this is my mantra. Uh, (laughs) If we had a more, if we had the most inclusive society we could be, we wouldn't have any diagnosis. No, we wouldn't. Oh, just, just to break up that, definitely listen to um, Factually by, with Adam Conover's episode on ADHD. Did you mm-hmm. listen to it, Mass? I did, I did. I really enjoyed it because I think he's, he comes from a similar place where I do. It's not mm. the same, obviously, but it is beneficial for me to be medicated because I feel like it helps me work better. But when I hear a lot of people saying, like, I think I have ADHD, blah, 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 I feel like the end goal is always to kind of, like, be medicated. And I'm like... Yeah, and that's why a lot of parents don't want their kids to have ADHD yeah. labels because they're worried that, oh, now I'm, they're just going to be medicated. Like, yeah. Not necessarily. But, like, I think there is this over... There's definitely a over panic or whatever about people being medicated. Like, it's some fucking bad thing and once you're medicated, you're mm. a different person. That's just not fucking true. Like, well, in my mm. case anyway, I'm not a different person at all. But, I'm on medication. I think I'm a better person yeah, with it. Thank you. Of course. Much. Like, why would you not want to be better? Um, but I think, yeah, there's this idea that being diagnosed with something like ADHD will make some kind of difference just with diagnosis alone. But it just depends on what you want to do with it, I think. If it's going to, mm. you know, it takes a long time to get diagnosed as well and a lot of money. So if you think that a diagnosis is going to improve your quality of work or life or socialization or whatever, like spend the time doing it. But if you're just doing it because I think I might have this, then, you know. Yeah. Follow the right channels. I guess drawing a line under that, uh, dissociative identity disorder is 
true, but I think it is context dependent. Yes. And I would suggest that what's what we see in Sybil is probably not the common. Yeah. Although when I was looking up uh, dissociative identity disorder, there's been like hundreds of personalities at one time. So according to the literature, there can be 16 personalities at once. Mm. Um, but just like, you know, there's 16 different personality traits in some research. So I don't know. Like when you're going through Sybil's alters, like to me it's like I don't even know if I have 16 diff- like I wouldn't have 16 fully formed selves to really even fragment into. Well, some of them I even wonder if they're fully formed. Yeah, I think know? they're just like, like little aspects. There's a few of them that are really similar. I don't really know why they all have to exist. I think I was I was actually very interested in this because I follow this this one specific person on TikTok who is DID. Um, and I don't know. I think just hearing, like, because DID TikTok is quite a big thing as well. Like, there's a lot of people that are that present themselves with dissociative identity disorder and they switch between their alters and they'll talk as them. And I think it's hard, a lot harder for me to accept that they're just making it all up. Yeah, it would be pretty hard to maintain those storylines and everything like again I, I'm not I don't think it doesn't ex- exist but I don't think it does exist <laughs> <laughs> I think it's I think it's look there's no there's no formal truth that ultimate there's no ultimate truth no there isn't as there's only speculation things. it is definitely controversial it's still considered controversial even sane Australia which um has a lot of resources for people with DID, say it is it is a controversial mm. diagnosis. It probably so. wouldn't be your first first diagnosis. And I have read as well that so people who get diagnosed with it are often, it takes them a long time to get to that diagnosis. They're usually diagnosed with their comorbid <laughs> symptoms like depression, anxiety, trauma. Exactly, before. yeah. Um, complex trauma, I would say, is probably the, the primary diagnosis. Mm. Mm. Based on the two kind of schools of diagnosis, schools of thought with this, um, the first one being that it's a trauma-based diagnosis and it stems from trauma. If we look at it that way, it's just a way of dealing with trauma, right? Yes. Right? So you don't deal with the DID, you deal with the trauma. Yeah. I just want to talk briefly about the treatment for DID. Obviously, I've not done it myself and I am definitely not... uh, experienced enough or trained in it so it's out of my field but what I did read is that it's usually a multi-stage approach Um, the first stage being stabilizing symptoms ensuring safety the second stage processing traumatic memories and working with trauma-based unhelpful beliefs and this third stage focusing on life issues goals and supporting healthy relationships and while this is probably more a modern list I think you could say pretty safely in at least the 70s that any sort of therapy should follow some basic safety first. You know, the the Maslow's hierarchy of needs came out a long time ago where mm-hmm. it's safety first. Oh, they knew. They knew. And then at the top of the pyramid supporting healthy relationships. Mm-hmm. And, you know, medications also often prescribe for that associated depression, anxiety. I don't think Sybil's given any medication from what I can remember. I don't know if I was well, right. Apart from the drugs. 
<laughs> the psychotropic drugs. I think she um, was given medication during therapy to try and uh, treat the dis- like to draw out information to bring out the memories and under the hypnosis. Um, but I did re I saw a comment from Debbie Nathan that said that she was like this was part of the criticism about Debbie Nathan's book where she makes these like kind of like kind of yucky uh, descriptions that uh, like Sybil was or Shirley was like half zonked all the time on oh, drugs. Okay. How would she have known that? <laughs> I think this is based off reports from Spiegel okay. or whatever his name is. Um, but but I don't think she was medicated for like uh, like daily use that kind of some kind of regular yeah. medication yeah but I think um medication aside the way that the movie goes both movies and assume the book goes through like I don't think Sybil is particularly safe or stable when they start processing the traumatic memories like I know Dr. Wilbur does a lot of the work in building a relationship but she pretty much pushes the point of processing the memories ASAP yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And the third stage, which is, you know, helping to build healthy relationships, there's no way she got to that stage. Like they no. didn't, they developed what I, what seems to be a very codependent relationship. Um, mm. Pretty sure Shirley Macy never married or anything. Well, she, they maybe did the work to try and build a healthy relationship with the two of them. Yeah. But not <laughs> but that's, with other people. That's not, it's not healthy. <laughs> well, that's not healthy, but yeah, like they did the work to try and do that didn't work nah it wasn't healthy but she didn't do any work to try and help her build relationships with other people exactly so i think maybe that's where the criticism comes from because dr wilbur didn't maybe wasn't a very good therapist (laughs) well it doesn't i I think you could pretty you can make a pretty good case whatever demi Mm. nathan wants to say i think she wasn't a very good therapist let's let's be honest before we finish up with treatment i just want to touch on hypnosis it's a big part of the films and can I yeah can I ask have you ever hypnotized anyone nah I've have you ever learnt how to hypnotize nah <laughs> have you ever been hypnotized nah okay cool just <laughs> gotta get those three out of the way good 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 three to get out of the way because that's where mm. I'm that's the position I'm talking from um yes and the reason why I haven't is because I I'm a bit skeptical about hypnosis and mm. so is the world and um, I'm skeptical, but intrigued. I'd yeah, love to be. I'm, I'm definitely yeah. intrigued, but I think it's it's hyped up a lot. Um, mm. You know, the the stereotypical view of hypnosis is you know making making you completely suggestible to do whatever someone tells you to do is pretty inaccurate. Yeah, there's like a difference between hypnotherapy and like being hypnotized for like fun, right? Yeah, and I don't yeah. think being hypnotized for fun is um, is what it's made out to be, um, mm. but. The, the interesting thing with hypnosis and DID is um, it was very early on used for DID um, mm. and very commonly used as a as a way to treat DID. But mm-hmm. the controversy has come about because the hypnotizability of people yes. is very high in those with dissociative identity yeah. disorders, essentially because dissociating is similar to being to being under hypnosis. It's basically that mind state. So the query is what comes first almost. Yeah. Um, it's, it's almost inevitable that hypnosis will play a role, but 
in terms of treating it through hypnosis or, you know, that suggestibility that comes from hypnosis could be used quite dangerously, I guess. That actually comes into my sociocognitive model. Yes, tell me about that, yeah. Maz. Well, so there are two there are two main ways of like I suggest said before, two way, main ways of looking at DID. One is a post-traumatic model, which um, looks at it from a trauma-based perspective. And then there's a socio-cognitive model, which looks at it from a perspective of skepticism. <laughs> so post-traumatic model is basically kind of what we see in things like Sybil. Um, it's a strategy developed to deal with trauma, um, mostly severe child abuse, um, whether that be sexual or physical, and as a coping strategy to deal with their abuse, they fret their part of their personality fragments um, or splits so they're able to compartmentalise that trauma and different personalities come out in different situations to deal with those type of uh, trauma, traumatic situations. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also dependent on self-reported abuse, mm-hmm. um, which can be problematic, especially when we're thinking about hypnosis and suggestibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also interesting that DID sufferers tend to experience a high level of abuse, but it's probably due to the fact that people that have suffered abuse are most likely to seek out treatment mm. for it and are therefore more likely to receive a diagnosis for it. So, Which is a little bit yeah. contrary to the view that DID comes out of like repressed memories. Um, which is kind of alluded to in in Sybil, although it's not really repressed, it's just one part of the personality remembers it, but Sybil doesn't. But Repressed memories are very interesting to me as well. I mean, that's another can of worms, but essentially what we know is a Mm. lot of the cases of repressed memories were found out to not be corroborated, um, especially around those satanic panic, Mm. that period in the 80s. The only thing that makes me question is, you remember the um, that documentary, the, the Keepers, about the uh, woman who oh experienced... yes yes, because that was a case of repressed memory. So she'd basically been abused or something, and she found out like she had the memory retriggered like thirty years later because she had completely forgotten it, and it turns out she had kind of witnessed or had evidence in a murder trial, and she'd remember it remembered it later and there's this really long documentary about it which is very compelling and I don't know it seemed pretty real to me so I don't know no you know? I, I think there's a case for those experiences but it's it's less yeah. repressed and like un, and locked in and, yeah and more I think that the cases of repressed memories that we don't really trust as the ones that come out in therapy or come out during yeah. leading questioning yeah. um like the kids from the daycare center that were, you know, asked so many questions that were just so inappropriate. Mm. It's like um, that documentary, catch, documentary <laughs> capturing the Freedmans. Yes, remember that? Yeah. Um, all the kids, the you know, kids were asked a lot of leading interview questions, and they came up with all these stories of abuse. But then, like, the dad did end up being a pedophile. Yeah, so it's just too much. Um, you know, things aren't cut and dry; they just aren't. But tell me about. Um, the socio-cognitive model, did you? So that's the that's the first model. Second model is a social, socio-cognitive model. And from the outset, this doesn't infer that people are making it up or that they're doing anything deceitful. It just kind of 
seeks out an explanation for why these cases exist. Mm -hmm. And it posits that individuals with DID are basically, they're enacting a social role. I love that word, posit. Um, I love posit, yeah. Um, Cultures have specific roles and expectations associated with having multiple selves. So women, we have uh, women, (laughs) we have a lot of, you know, different roles in society. You know, we have to be, we have to be mum, we have to be boss bitch, boss baby, you know. Um, And especially with women probably in in the 50s era, um, probably had a lot of trouble dividing themselves between, you know, the women they were supposed to be, housewives and whatever, and then the women say, women, the women's, the women they wanted to be themselves. So they're probably, you know, you can kind of understand where that feeling comes from. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, it says, it talks about how DID it's influenced by conscious and unconscious factors, um, but just doesn't necessarily imply that they're faking it. Um, and most commonly DID will come out of certain therapies that use, um, do use hypnosis, um, and kind of suggestive, treatment mm-hmm. um leading questions that you know easy to just like what we we're saying yeah. yeah um but it also goes into people that are highly suggestible um people with DID have the pro- a propensity towards false memories and we all have we all have that propensity towards false memories mm-hmm. you see a picture of something and then you picture it and then you kind of start to believe that it. memory is what we've what we know is memory is incredibly fallible yeah it's very fickle and even in, like, you know, when people are trying their hardest to remember things correctly, it's always, like, mostly wrong. Well, what I learned is that when you remember something, you're actually only remembering the last time you remembered it. Yes, yes. And it changes over time. Yeah, it's like time. And you remember the feelings you had of that memory and they can change depending on your situation. And I think I think that's something we should probably know more about as a society because we rely on our memories so much without realising that they're, you know, and it's nothing wrong, it's not but it's not a bad thing that they're often not correct, but that's just how they are. So mm. you rely on, yeah, yeah. Um, and then, yeah, people with DID are also, they have a high level of suggestibility, fantasy proneness, cognitive failures like inattentiveness um, and hypnotizability. But I think that probably also goes into, like, Children who have been abused probably do have propensity towards fantasizing about things. Yeah. Um, escaping, escaping their own yeah. reality. Yeah. So it, 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 yeah, it's kind of like a cause and effect type of thing. It's a what came first, the chicken or the egg? It is. But I did see, I had this, mm, this interesting about it being culturally relative, was it? Um, well, it's incredibly yeah. culturally relative. So there's obviously a high case number um, for of Western cultures and different cultures will have different interpretations, like say with like religious people, demons, etc., etc. Um, but one, uh, example of this is in India, the transition period between altars, um, and individual shifts is typically preceded by sleep. Hmm. That's interesting. So, I wonder why. Whereas like in Sybil, it's like they just shift constantly. Switch. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I'm not sure how it, yeah. accurate so that is. No, no, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, because she just gets triggered and then she's she's gone. That's really interesting, and I think it's interest like in terms of sociocognitive, it's way more prevalent in women than men. Mm. Yes, yes. And I wonder if that's a sociocognitive thing where, like you say, women were traditionally only allowed to do one thing, and then as they were more, there was more scope for 
us gals to do more than just the one thing of being the childbearer. Yeah. It's like shifting between roles and that would have been such a different experience, whereas men can do whatever the fuck they want. Yeah, and I guess it's confusing. It's culturally confusing as well because Mm. especially as, like, women, it's kind of like Madonna Hall complex where it's like women are supposed to be virginal and pure at heart but also supposed to be sexy and, you know, a little slut. Yes. <laughs> but, like, that's two selves. That's two, like, that's being exactly. two people at once. They're two complete opposite. Yeah, I, like, the connection between dissociation and sleep is really interesting to me because I, I physically feel that effect as well. Um, but basically this paper was talking about how there is a relationship between sleep, memory problems, and dissociation. Um, basically, aversive events or, like, traumatic or stressful or whatever events will affect your sleep mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then the intrusion to your sleep can create um dissociative symptoms so basically you have a bad time you can't sleep properly and then because you can't sleep prop- properly you're more likely to experience dissociation mm. so it's just kind of like a flow and effect um, and that makes sense because it's a it's a um alertness yeah state well, as well yeah because Dissociating feels a lot like dreaming, mm. so it's yeah. But they took there. There was this one study. I'm not at uni anymore, so I'm not as good as this. But there was this one study where 266 patients were treated for sleep hygiene over an eight week period. Initially, 24% of them met the clinical cutoff for a dissociative disorder, not just DID, the full spectrum of them. And at the end of the study, where they enacted strategies to improve their sleep cycles and Sleep hygiene, twelve only 12% of them met the criteria. So basically mm. the assumption is that you improve your sleep cycle and your sleep hygiene and your dissociative symptoms decrease, Yeah, basically. And I, that makes sense. It does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sleep hygiene, just to clarify, is, I guess, healthy sleep practices like having a good yeah. routine, uh, having a, a safe, comfortable place to sleep, light being off or low and um not having stimulated stuff it's like you know a routine that makes is is beneficial for sleep and look i think sleep hygiene is great and when i practice it most of the time it works but what i really resent is every time i go i've been to a doctor they say you need to do better with your sleep hygiene i could follow those sleep hygiene practices to a fucking t for my entire life and i'm still not going to sleep like sometimes Someone like me just cannot sleep. Yeah, that's so fuck you. Because your brain isn't wired <laughs> yes, that way. I have I have a, a lack of melatonin or my circadian ribbons off or whatever. Mm. But what frustrates me about a lot of the articles that I've read is like specifically even like with the sociocultural model, cognitive model and this sleep study, is they often they'll they'll present the findings like, Oh, we found a high connection between DID and suggestibility and prone to fantasize and the sleep um, correlation but that's it like they don't mm. give an explanation <laughs> and it's and they're it's like a this very... would be good to look at in the future yeah the end. it's extremely under research because it does make sense as well because it's like the percentage of the population that experienced DID is very low but and yeah, then it's, you, it's being quite close to someone who does research daily Getting the required participants that meet all the criteria and then being able to do the research and then getting the grant to be able to do 
this particular research and then wanting to do more research. It's a huge, it's very difficult. So It's pure and simple fuckery. That's what it is. <laughs> and there's it's not just... enough people going, you know, doing awareness for DID in order for it to be more of a, uh, a social yeah, awareness essential. campaign. Yeah. yeah. And like, I think about it, like, imagine, you know, having a really great idea for a study, going out and doing a bunch of research, you know, it takes a year, you finish the study, and then you find out that your um, hypothesis was just incorrect. <laughs> like, how much would that fucking suck? But that's, so you know, a lot of that research doesn't always get published, and that's still important information. Oh, yeah, we'd love to know why it's not correct. Mm. Oh. We like to rule things out sometimes. It's interesting having the two different explanations for DID because that kind of makes makes it make more sense as a diagnosis. Um, I think the problem with Sybil and the, the cultural phenomena of Sybil and Shirley Mason, I think there's clearly there's clearly something going on with old Sibs. She's not <laughs> she's she's not all Sibby. good. Um I want to I want to highlight that just because she probably isn't presenting classic DID doesn't mean that she's that she's faking or making it up or there's mm. something not wrong with her because it clearly was <laughs> like she was not well. Mm. Yeah. Well, obviously she was at, she was having a lot of therapy for a reason. So yeah, Dr. Herbert Spiegel uh, was one of the main dudes who came out saying that it was falsified, that it had been made up by Dr. Wilbur, but We've been quite light on the old wilbs, but he was very critical of the fact that she wanted to make money and allegedly when he... Because he would see her intermittently Dr. over Spiegel. a period of... Yes. Over, she was kind of... He was like a co-therapist. Um, so I wonder if in the mo- in 2007 movie he was like the colleague. Yeah, possibly. That's mm. who I think he might represent, but it's obviously the same, a different name. Yeah. He would do these things called age regression studies with her. I, I, I'm not, I don't really know what that is. Um, I think it's something to do with trauma um, and has something to do with hypnosis. I don't fucking know. Um, <laughs> but during one of these sessions, Sybil asked Spiegel, well, do you want me to be Helen? According to Spiegel, Sybil told her that Helen was a name Dr. Wilbur had given me for this feeling. Spiegel believed that Wilbur was helping her identify aspects of her life or perspectives that she then called by name. By naming them this way, she was reifying a memory of some kind and converting it into a personality. Like mm. she created the DID. Yeah, but um, I mean, you know, that's might be helpful. That's to... a therapeutic technique for mm. like in like narrative therapy is like. Actually, I remember my psychologist once saying to me, like, you should name that symptom. You should uh, give it <laughs> name name that feeling. Like name that feeling Bart symptom. Yeah. It's also, I think it's also used in act a fair bit where you, you give something uh, like a symbol or a name or, a, or even a, you know, come up with a, a cartoon for it or some, some sort mm, of I- mm. icon to help manage it better. It makes it less scary, scary or... and, and yeah. overwhelming. Mm. It's, it's a very, I think it's a very adaptive way of doing it. But it doesn't sound like Spiegel thought it was a good way of doing it. No. Well, I think because... The result of that was her naming all these different personalities and acting them out maybe was unhelpful. But then so apparently Dr. Wilbur had asked Dr. Spiegel to help out with the book because he had treated Sybil and um, he said no because she doesn't have multiple personalities. That's not what it should be called. And then Dr. Wilbur said, if we don't call it that, 
we don't have a book. The publishers want it to be that, otherwise it won't sell. The publishers this, want it to be multiple personality disorder. Yeah. Mm. So he, he says that he has tapes that prove that she didn't have multiple personalities and that Wilbur had made it up, but no one's heard these tapes. I don't know what happened to them. And he brought them out after they're all dead. And his, what he says is that she was just a highly suggestible hysteric. See, that makes um, me not like Spiegel. I know. I know. That's, <laughs> this is the problem because some of the quotes, some of the quotes that he has about her just – he sounds like just like a sexist fucking asshole. Yeah. Like just some of the, like he, he talks about her um, reproductive cycle and her hormones and her being hysteric. So it's like, I don't want to trust you, mate. Like this isn't, no, nah, I don't know. It's just, I was like, okay. <laughs> I, maybe she was wrong, but it sounds like he was also He wrong. wasn't right. Yeah. He wasn't <laughs> wrong. He, he was wrong. It was definitely would, not just her menstrual cycles. Or if yeah. it was, then that's still valid. Well, yeah. Cause fucking, Periods are fucked. Mm. But somehow I got onto, I um, read this really great chapter of a book, which I don't know what's called. Um, it was about three cases of like memory suppression, repressed memories. And the first bit was about Freud. And like, seriously, reading, it was a case, I don't know, I think her name was Doris. I'm not, I've kind of forgotten. But he was convinced that she had all these repressed sexual urges because of the body language that she exhibited and all this shit. Towards him. Yeah. And, like, you know, her, like, closing her purse meant that she um, was having sexual... Like, just all this... It just sounds weird. like Freud was horny at the like, time. Like, honestly, like, you read it... And she's a 14-year-old girl, and you read it back, and you're like, you're just a fucking, like, creep. Like, and that's the same way I kind of feel about the Spiegel guy. It's like you have... Like, just because you're a psychologist, psychiatrist, and whatever... You're still allowed to be a fucking weirdo. And some of the things you're saying just sound yuck. And, like, we probably shouldn't... Like, fucking... I need to do a big case study into Freud. I'll start a podcast about him and just be like, what the fuck? This guy's disgusting. Like, why do we... Why do we? Anyway. Why do we? <laughs> I just don't... I think I don't. that was psychiatry at the time. And, and in some ways, it still is. And when I remember first hearing about Freud, it was like, oh, my God, this guy's crazy. And then it was... um Oh, he's actually, you know, doing a lot of coke and stuff. But now my perspective is like, you are disgusting. You're just a bad person. Anyway, I don't know what I'm talking about. So knowing all of this, so when, when did Spiegel start talking about this stuff? It was around 1998. I'm pretty sure that's when he first gave his first interview. Right. Um, and I'm, But I'm not sure. So Debbie Nathan's book comes out in 2011 and I don't know where she got her information from. I don't really know that much about that. But she has, the way she describes it as very you know when you're reading something and it's like written in such a way that gives it uh, credibility she just Nathan writes in a way that's just really pedestrian if you will like just one quote she says she had babies she had little boys she had teenage girls she wasn't faking I think a better way to think about it was that Shirley what Shirley was doing was acceding to a demand that she have this problem I don't actually that's a bad example but <laughs> um that sounds um yeah I don't like her writing style very much. Um, she also said Wilbur began injecting Mason regularly with sodium pentathol. Pentathol? Pentathol, yeah. Which was then being used to help people remember traumatic events that they had repressed. Under the influence of drug and hypnosis, the very suggestible Mason uncovered her many personalities. And that's just like, I, I don't doubt that she was being drugged, but it's just a very uh, reductive way to put it. Like... She was drugged. That's when she. It's not really written in an objective way. It's very no. Uh, yeah, pushing an agenda. This and book. she. It also... would be nice to have 
the actual receipts. <laughs> I want the receipts. Yes, please. Um, she talks about the, the effects of the drugs, which she was, I think, pretty clearly addicted to. I think Nathan also talks thinks that um, uh, Sybil was a hysteric as well, which I just can't stand. Like, what is that's a not hysteric? a thing. <laughs> that's not that's not a thing. It's just a fucking anyway. Um, so she says that she was experiencing constipation, cold sores, sore throats, sinus trouble, bad periods, weight loss, headaches, nausea, 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 fatigue, depression, insomnia, anemia, anemia, and felt confused and unable to remember. Unable to remember things. So she was addicted to drugs. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say, if the drugs went in there, she might have premenstrual dysphoria. PMS? No, like... PMD. PMDD. Premenstrual dysphoric depression, I think. Yeah, sorry. It is what the name says. (laughs) Yeah, but yeah, that sounds like addiction. (laughs) Shirley Mason Sybil had pernicious anemia, which I think is a big deal. I assume. Um, and she only mentions that towards the end of the book. Anemia has pretty huge effects on your mental health too. So there were there are very well-proven things that were wrong with her that this author kind of throws out and it's like she was just making it all up. And it's like, well, she wasn't making it all up because there was clearly something wrong and she was reacting to the stimulus she had of Dr. Wilbur, the stimulation. And, mm. <laughs> you know, if Sybil was maybe treated more effectively uh, and ethically, she may have just gotten better. And I think also the fact that all this information comes from a book made in, written in the 70s, but it's not a psychiatric case study. It's like a narrative. It's, a, mm. it's, it is, it's like the movies. They're fictionalised in a way to tell a story. So they shouldn't, it shouldn't be treated as pure hard fact. It's like the social network. We don't, we don't watch that and be like, that's exactly what happened. I just want to say one last thing about accuracy. In the 2007 movie, Dr. Wilbur says that uh, Sybil has an IQ of 170. Like, do you have any idea how rare that IQ is? It's like one in a million people. (laughs) If she was that smart. I couldn't imagine. Like. What's a normal, what's an average IQ? 100. between 90 and 110 is the average range. So in the 2007 one, why did they, like, where the fuck does that come from? They'll just say, oh, we'll I, just throw it in. She's really I smart. don't know. Maybe it was weird. in the book, but. Um, I haven't seen. The thing is, if that was true, I think it'd be more of a point that she's fucking a yeah, genius, like, right? If she's that smart, maybe she's making up and, and keeping these yeah. narratives of all these different people because she would be smart enough to do that. Well, if she's that smart, she probably just wouldn't just be, like, studying art, right? I don't know. Maybe I'm being well, biased. She's a very good artist, but... Um, Maybe I'm being horrible to smart people, but, you know. I just... I don't really understand. Like, she's like, oh, she's very bright. She's 170. Like, um, no, she's fucking genius. Like, <laughs> extreme genius. I think maybe that was just, like, writing, though. Like, okay, we've got to say she's smart and they just didn't know what IQ was normal. And I just want to touch on a couple of stereotypes to keep with our theme. Um, the first one is women be crazy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think we've touched mm. on that enough. Well, and yeah. as I just said, people with severe mental illness are highly intelligent and genius. Yes. Yeah. Ter- not helpful stereotype. Also that regardless of your position on the diagnosis, people with DID are violent and yes. um, dangerous yes. people because we've obviously seen that in other movies like Split and yeah, Fight Club and yes. 
most people with DID are most likely to be victims. Victims! <laughs> and um, not be violent people whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So she True. isn't specifically a violent pe- person, but she is like, she breaks glass. She's trying to harm people all the time. She throws tantrums. Mm. She pisses in public, which we love. But yeah. Um, <laughs> Also, that people with mental illness can't maintain or have a relationship or have love, yeah, family, unless you're a therapist Um, trying to profit off you. And and if you do, you're going to abuse your child because you know the mum has schizophrenia, so clearly she's going to be an abusive mum. It's just frustrating because evil people in movies can't just be evil people; they have to be schizophrenic. Like, why can't her mum just be an evil person? Like, why do we have to? Or, you know, rather than being schizophrenic, she could be, ha- you know, be a narcissist because... She's just a bad person. That's also probably more likely. Like, you know, schizophrenia, people with schizophrenia aren't, don't want to, usually don't want to harm people, especially mm. not their own child. I just think schizophrenia seems to be like a catch-all in movies for like, oh, a dangerous and harmful person. I don't think it was thought through in this movie at all. And I guess lastly that... You know, it's that usual trope of the therapist blurring the boundary lines. Like, again, I know we've talked about it, but it's just another example in a movie where a therapist is expected to be really bad with boundaries and go beyond what you should do as a therapist. Um, But also the um, transphobia of... Yes. Sybil has two male alters, and in both movies, I feel, especially in the 70s one, it's treated very... Uh, adversely by Dr. Wilbur. Yeah, I think in the 2007 one she says, a boy in a girl's body does not grow up to be a man, which is so transphobic. What the fuck? And that was made in 2007. Like I know it was based in the 70s, but it's 2007. Just don't say that. Yeah. But, like, yeah, in the 70s she she really discourages her from, from being... When she's talking as the male altar, she was she has a couple of things that are just like, no, you're not a boy. You're not a boy. Like, mm. um, you know, you can't, again, like you can't have babies or whatever. And, like, you know, it's like, in that, you know, the construct of a personality, if Sybil feels, this, the whole person Sybil feels like part of her personality is male, then that, why is that a problem? <laughs> well, if we're like, if the whole thing is based on the fact that her personality has fragmented, of course there are going to be male alters because part of being a person, like, to, well, me personally is inherently, like, as part of me that is quite masculine. So if I'm going to have a personality named, I don't know, to suit that feeling, it would probably be the male. I don't know. Am I being transphobic? Hopefully not. I don't think so. I think I you're, um, I think we're more gender fluid than this, than society wants us Expects people exactly. To be. Yeah, but yeah, I just if you're gonna if you're gonna split the genders into two, which I don't agree with, but part of Sybil is going to be masculine, part of Sybil is going to be feminine. Yeah, I don't know. I it, it was definitely played for like shock value. Yeah, and yeah. who knows how accurate it was in the t- in the book, but mm. um, I'm sure it was played like that way in the book too. What What are some other things that you thought were harmful about the movie, Maz? So Doctor Wilbur says, "I love you a lot." <laughs> I I've been to I've been to like five psychologists in my time. None of them's never said they loved me. That'd oh my god! I think mine did recently. As if that's weird. No, in, in a fun way. Like, oh, love you. <laughs> oh my god! I would melt. 
I would oh, just no, no, melt. no. I was like, oh, some people, maybe some people don't like me. She's like, I like you. I love you. <laughs> oh! Get a new therapist, though. That's weird. No. Yeah, no, no. It's, it's very much affectionate and like, I'm your friend, I'm your family sort of thing. Yeah, it's just, there is just this, that one point where they sit in the big chair and she's like, come sit in the big chair with me. And it's mm. like, this is weird. Like, just the, like, the hugging as well. Like, Sybil's a full-grown woman. Like, I just feel like it's harmful in that that's how people think therapy is. And it also, you know, a th- your therapist can be like your stand-in mum. And yeah. you can only get therapy or psychiatry in this case if you have extreme mental mm. presentations like DID. And I'm I sure like at the, the time that's how people kind of thought, oh, yeah, probably. you go to a therapist if you're like, you know, you've got lots of personalities. Not if you're feeling a bit sad. Except they decided to remake in 2007 and perpetuate that stereotype. Exactly. Which I'm so happy they did. <laughs> we know that in 2007, when this movie was remade, there was ample speculation about whether this case was true or not. Um, within public psyche, it had, people didn't care as much as they did, like in the 80s and 90s, so it wasn't as big of a deal. But still... It was very well known that this case was disputed. So why did we need to remake this movie in the exact same way that it was portrayed in the 70s? Like, there's no... I don't I don't know, Maz. I don't, I don't have an answer. <laughs> I know that there is a character that questions Dr. Wilbur. Um, but he's a cunt. In 2007. He's, yeah, well, yeah, he's just doing... He's more of... He's making more of a problem. But so... In a movie that we know, in a book that is somewhat fictionalised, we know this, we watch a child see her sweetheart killed by a pitchfork, her extremely abusive mother screams at her for drawing trees purple, her her mother shits in the neighbour's front yard, Um, she watches her newborn sister get buried in the front yard, she watches her parents have sex at six for the first time, she watches her mother molest young girls, her mother sexually assaults her with an ice pick, and we see a lot of like it's, it's it's not it's not fully graphic, but it's very graphic, and it's just too much. It's um, way too much. It's really gratuitous. And yeah, her mother gives her ice enemas, which I uh, I, I think it's like her ice mother, bath, like cold water enemas, and she makes her like hold onto it. While she plays piano. Yeah, so she she ties her up to the piano and makes her hold on to the water while she plays it. Like that is like just describing that is upsetting. So I'm sorry, listeners. Yeah, <laughs> but it's. I don't want to say that if anyone who's experienced that level of abuse is making it up or anything, but that is like that's cartoonish. Sort of like that's just so much. It's very extreme and it's very unique. Like yeah, like and I, I sent him as like. I remember when I watched this, I think the first time I was probably like 13, 14. I had no idea what the fuck that was. I didn't I know, really what know what the that fuck is. it was when I watched it the other day. <laughs> That's just very confusing because it's very, it's almost inventive. We know that there's speculation about whether this actually happened or not. Why did we, why did we need that? Why not make this movie maybe taking into account or doing a little bit of research about DID. I know it was 2007, which was a while ago, but there's still, it's not that fucking long ago. Like You know in the 70s version where she makes that star and then her mum makes her get it off the tree, you can't put it on the tree and throw it in the bin? Like that's traumatising enough. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, like having her mother scream at her because she drew trees purple. Yeah. that That's yucky. That feels yucky. That's just not... That's that's closer to my experience, and that's but. it. It it also kind of delegitimizes 
trauma like what yeah. we just said when you know when we see this movie and we see such horrific very unusual stuff happening the, the people that are going through the the mum screaming with at you because you draw trees purple kind of stuff can be like oh my you know my trauma is not that valid if if that's what Sybil's going through so it's pretty harmful to trauma depictions it's in itself and in actually in debbie nathan's book she talks about how she couldn't find evidence of all the things happening but she only found evidence of uh traumatic tonsillectomy which Mm. is presented in the movie but like okay like that's so what that can't be traumatic enough is that not traumatic enough for you like you don't yeah yeah. that sounds pretty traumatic what are we ranking trauma now no thank you Nah. But and that's that's an important p- thing to note too. Trauma is very relative to the person experiencing it. What's traumatic to one person might not be for someone else. No, exactly. But yeah, I just I like I know I know it's like kind of a shitty telly movie type thing on the Hallmark channel that not many people are going to watch, but I watched it and s- for some fucking reason and I'm sure there's a lot of other people on my boat who saw it. So it like just watch it. Anyway, <laughs> Just want to say one last thing that I think is harmful is the depiction of being suicidal. Um, like none of the other altars are suicidal. It's only Martha, Martha or Marsha. Um, and she's like so caricaturistic. Like yeah, she's that's wearing all she a, wants to do. a head covering and she's just yeah. like life is meaningless. Like it's not yeah. people aren't like that when they're suicidal usually. And it's common in all types of personalities. It's not a personality in and of itself. I just found that well, so just yucky. All of her other alters have, like, facets to their personality. Like, they don't just do one thing. Like, um, what's her name? The the French one doesn't just speak French. She like also she, shops. She, yeah, she has lots of other things that she does. But that altar who is suicidal, that's her only goal. And only, but she's kind of like the only altar that only has one goal. What was there anything helpful about this movie? <laughs> no. <laughs> I just thought you know it might be helpful if you were interested in psychiatry or psychology, seeing how male oriented it was. And but to me, that's a problem. <laughs> like it's a problem, but you know maybe it is. Um, helpful to remind people that how male driven it was and how hard it is as a woman to be taken seriously as a psychiatrist and as a patient but it was like a plot point of the 2007 movie but it I think actually kind of lends like it gives legitimacy to the case of Sybil Mm. because it's something we can all be like well that's fucked how terrible they are to her doesn't necessarily mean it's true right like I just don't know if the two need to be in the same movie Let's watch a let's watch a, a movie about a psychiatrist trying to trying to make it in a male dominated world. I did read, and you know Nathan said this, so maybe she's not as biased as as it seems. She said many young women wrote to Schreiber, um, the author, to say that Sybil's story sh- struck a chord with them, and they felt torn between the traditional female role and the new opportunities that were opening up as a result of feminism. We were just sort of talking about that. Um, reading about this poor girl who had developed all these personalities and vanquished them and then put them all together and learned how to use them. Well, that's the inspiration that I got from reading Sybil, that I can take all of my different selves and put them back together and lead a full life. That's what Nathan said. But, you know, my query is, but what came first? And is there a way that that story could have struck a chord without 
you know, if it, if it did highlight something that was actually going on, that could be seen yeah. as helpful. But if it wasn't and it pathologized a very normal experience, yeah. that's not helpful. And I'm not, you know, pathologizing something doesn't have to be unhelpful, but in the society that that was in the 70s, pathologizing things could be really bad for people. I think I don't know if anything that was pathologized in the 70s ended up being good. No, like, you know, the <laughs> services that you got if you were mentally ill weren't great. No. As no we good. can see, what happened to Sybil, she died s- stuck with a therapist. Until <laughs> she died. That's not great. No one else would fucking help her. Um, but I guess it, it, it look, the, the book and the movie, the original movie, brought awareness to something that was happening, as rare as it was. It just blew up in, in not a very helpful way. But it, it created a bit of a mass panic. Hysteria. Hysteria. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, it kind of, I don't know, maybe maybe that's harmful. <laughs> it is, but I'm trying to say, hey, maybe that was helpful. As an explanation for, like, if you presented with a person who was acting the way Sybil was, it would make sense that trauma fragments you based on events. Like, it, 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 it makes enough sense that it could be accepted to be a real thing. Yeah, and, you know, PTSD. Yeah. Flashbacks yeah. and triggers are very common, which is how she presented in that the beginning. Of- I think maybe we're just we're, we're understanding trauma a lot better, maybe now. Hundred percent, yeah. Yeah, and you know things like DID obviously aren't diagnosed as commonly as they were because we have different words for a different way of identifying. I think that's essentially it in a nutshell. Wow, I just I just ended trauma. <laughs> well, we fixed trauma, everybody. <laughs> I just solved Sybil. Podcast over. Well, shall we do a little score checkup? All right. Lived experience, well, we only have a, a handful and I none of it is, oh, well, Brad Davis went through a lot of trauma, it seems. But um, I think the problem is the only, like, the only characters that matter in this movie are Dr. Wilbur and Sybil. And unless you're one of those two, your lived experience isn't really relevant. Yes, I agree. So I think we'll just skip that one. <laughs> There's not enough info. Sybil was a real person, so is that count as lived experience? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I think we just leave that one out because Enough. it's based on the real Fuck thing. It. Accuracy, I think I don't think we can really really give it a score for the same kind of reason. Skip scores. I think yeah. we should just like let's cut to the chase. It's just a, it's, it's a good old zero. Well, in terms of stereotypes and harmful, I think you're right. I don't think it passes. It being a real story as well complicates things because it's hard to talk about and not really know, yeah, because you end up talking about the real thing that happened, including the movie, and it's just, I don't know. And I think if we can talk about it in terms of what it did for mental illness and how it shaped people's understanding and whether that was a good or bad thing, I think it's just questionable. You know, it's just it's just like what we think about DID. It's controversial. That's that's the long and the short of it. There's definitely some harmful aspects, for sure. So I think the real question we need to answer is DID real, Steph? It's as real as you want it to be. No, honestly, though, um, I think it is. It's... Um, but its mechanisms are still not well understood. Yeah. We know, I, I, I think what I said before, like it, 
names a cluster of symptoms and behaviors of a person. We're just not necessarily sure of why or where that comes from. And I definitely would say that it's overdiagnosed and probably some uh, oh, yeah. presentations of it are probably less pathological than they seem. How often, like, do we use hypnosis much um, anymore? Not for the purposes that people think we do. I think we use it in in a way that's less magical than it's portrayed in the movies. Yeah. Well, my old psychologist, I remember looking on her website once and she said she did hypnotherapy. Mm. And I asked her, can I do hypnotherapy? And she was kind of like, nah. <laughs> She's kind of like, I don't think that's going to be helpful for you. I think, I think of it in terms of like having, being in a bit of an altered state mm. and using that altered state to help um, make you feel more in control not control, but um, process things in a different it's, way. Yeah, it's more about because you're still conscious, right? Like you're still you're not like when you. I was reading about it, like when you're hypnotized. It's kind of like that half awake, half asleep state where you're just, you know, you've it's like lucid, kind of lucidly dreaming, but you're you know you're awake, like you're awake, um, like you're zoned out, like you're dissociating. Yeah, yeah. and that's what makes dissociative people hypnotize the book exactly so i'd probably be doing i'd probably do really well you probably would Maz. yeah and i think also hypnosis can be very relaxing and meditative so it can be used for that that um purpose as well we're probably not hypnotizing Mm. people and just um diagnosing them with did that often definitely for good reason not that often well thank you maz for hitting this nail on the head. Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you very much for listening. If you got to the end, well done, everyone. <laughs> um, <laughs> and don't forget to like us, subscribe to us. Stay safe. Don't be a DMAC and get vaxxed. Bye.